Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Corp Dev World. Here we talk about how to demystify the M&A process for buyers, for sellers, for searchers, people who want to get involved in the space and don't necessarily know how to either put together the right team, how to you know do the diligence. And so each episode, we try to cover a different topic here. And uh, today we're going to focus on how to put together the right deal team. And so in this episode, I have an awesome guest with us. Her name is Heather Andreessen, and she has decades of experience in the SMB M&A space with over a decade of experience as a director in the CDC Small Business Finance, uh, over five, close to six years with Live Oak Bank, uh, which is a major player in the whole M&A space. Um, but Heather, I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on. I think our audience is going to find this super valuable. Um, and you actually have a super new type of initiative and business that you're uh, a part of and have set up and are the owner of now too. So I'll let you take a minute or two, introduce yourself and talk about uh, Viso Capital. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yes, I'd love to talk a little bit about what I'm doing with Viso. Um, so what what I'm doing is actually helping you with your deal team. So that's the the topic today, right? Yeah. And um, and what Viso does is sort of take the burden of most of the burden, at least, of the debt raise off of a searcher's shoulders during the most critical time of the deal, which is during diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will uh, put together a great organized package. Uh, once someone is under LOI, and I select the banks that I know will most be the best fit for that bank. Um, I can do that more efficiently than someone who hasn't done what I've done for the last several years and knows all the lenders and knows all the the uh, different credit appetites that are out there. So I can not only make a selection of a lender uh, better more quickly, but I can also use the leverage of the volume of a loan brokerage like Viso to get faster service, better terms on the deal. Um, you know, and and problem solving that's more rapid. When you're just an individual borrower, um, you just have one loan, you're coming to a bank, uh, th- you don't have that leverage. And so, yeah. um, you know, there, there's definitely some advantages. But yes, I left after over 30 years in banking, uh, I left uh, employment of, a, of being in a bank uh, to, to start my own business and um, to serve, you know, acquisition entrepreneurs, if you will. Um, I primarily place SBA deals, and that is because banks have already built in a referral fee, if you will, into their SBA business model where they don't charge that to the customer. So the beauty of the service that I provide is it's free to the customer. So your options are you can shop three or four banks and and go into the email hell that that, that represents for you uh, and all the time and uh, effort of answering the same questions over and over for different banks. Or you can come to Viso and we'll do that for you. Um, and we'll keep everything organized in one beautiful deal room, which I know we're going to talk about later. Yep. But that is, that is the process. For no ad- added cost, um, you know, I take that burden on and I hopefully get you better terms and better service. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to actually take it from there because you've brought up some great points that I know a lot of first time searchers always ask, which is when is the right time to start talking with someone like yourself or to start looking um, for that debt financing piece? Like it might be different for a traditional searcher versus self-funded. And, uh, but, but when, when are they at a, like in a good position to come to talk to someone like yourself? 
Well, there's kind of two phases to that. So when you're searching and you don't have a particular deal that you're almost going to be under LOI on, um, it's it's still a good idea to come to Viso. I have sessions every two weeks. We cover all the frequently asked questions. We provide you templates and models that you can use to size up deals. And, and by the way, one of my templates that I've created is a non-financial scorecard, if you will. And, and it's really important because a lot of people get too hung up on all of the financial metrics. So mm-hmm. I have folks look at other uh, things that are qualities of businesses that are really important that are outside of the financial metrics. But come when you're searching so that you learn all of that and that you get the templates and you get an understanding of how banks are going to look at the financing. That way you can structure LOIs that are very likely to get financed. Um, And so that's important. Um, There's a second phase. So that's sort of the first phase, preparing to search, understanding the debt perspective before you do. Then when you're about to get an LOI signed or you have it signed, that's when the real process begins. And that's when you come back uh, with a specific deal with those templates filled out. And if you get the signed LOI, we actually begin with creating a data room to start uploading everything about that business and about you into that data room. Got it. Got it. Okay. And I want to bring up a point you just brought up, which is that you assist sometimes with the structure of the LOI for to make sure that it can get financed. So are there certain types of language or, you know, we don't need to get into the legal too much, but in general, is there certain kind of mistakes or issues you've seen with LOIs that are set up that then need to be renegotiated because they were set up that it can't be properly financed? Yes, definitely. We we see lots of reworks on LOIs um, for that very reason. So um, they kind of fit into two different categories, the mistakes. One of them is um, purely financial, um, either the price or the seller note amortization or something about the structure. Just uh, it, it, it creates a debt coverage ratio that's just too skinny or too thin for banks to get comfortable with. That's okay. kind of one, one possibility that happens. The other one is depending on the type of debt that you're going to use, if you're going to use SBA debt, um, you've got to be aware of the SBA eligibility rules. You've got to structure an LOI that doesn't violate those rules. And and just to make things more complicated, they weren't always that easy to understand in the first place, but the SBA has just gone through a major rule change. And uh, there happens to be a lot of confusion right now about exactly what is uh, eligible and what's not and um, and what banks will entertain and what they won't. So it's really important to have a good relationship with uh, someone who understands that to kind of give you that advice before you submit the LOI. You don't want to get a seller to finally give you a signed LOI and have to go back right away and, and change it if you, you know, it happens, but but you want to avoid that, of course. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm sure that can lead to a very difficult, you know, first impression if you have to go back and change your LOI um, with, with the seller. So Definitely makes sense. I definitely appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Okay. And so one of the things that I know that just searches in general and people that I talk to in the day-to-day are also just bringing up is interest rates are changing like crazy. The economic environment is not as frothy as it was two years ago, even last year. Um, You've told me in the past that banks are tightening their, their credit up. They're not getting the right results or the right kind of financials back that they're used to. And so how do you feel like this change in interest rate or this macro environment is impacting kind of the search environment, like in terms of being being able to get a deal done? 
Absolutely. Deals are still getting done. That's the good news. They're getting done differently, though, because of all those factors that you mentioned. So interest rates being one of them, obviously, the debt payments have gone up significantly. So really, mm-hmm. that means a little bit lower leverage is what's needed, you know, you know, against the same EBITDA, you've got to have a little bit less leverage in order to make those payments work on a DSCR basis. Um, the banks are definitely tightening. Um, you're, you're, your lender is a salesperson and they're not going to tell you that. That's not their job. But uh, but the reality is they are tightening. Um, they are uh, seeing cracks, if you will, or stresses in their in their loan portfolios. Nothing devastating or anything like that. But just, you know, a, a big difference between, um, you know, now and a year ago in terms of the kinds of financial statements they're receiving on their existing borrowers. Whenever banks start to see, uh, you know, what they have to do internally is sort of classify their loans. And when they have to start downgrading loans because the financial statements aren't looking as good as they used to, that changes the, the what's going on in a bank psychologically. So yeah. like I said, even if it's not devastating losses, which it's not, uh, it doesn't matter. It still changes the way they look at things. And um, they certainly have become a lot more conservative and picky. Um, you know, maybe if you if you bring in a deal that reminds them of one of the loans that they just downgraded, that's that's uh, not going to be. Uh, good. They're they're gonna they're gonna uh, you know kind of paint you with that same brush um, potentially. So uh, tighter credit means lower leverage again. So uh, we need either more flexible seller notes, little bit lower multiples. Although I haven't seen multiples move very much, so I think really the the main movement has been in more flexible seller notes, larger seller notes, and more flexible seller notes. Um, and, you know, in, in some cases, more equity. You know, there are equity investors out there who are very interested in this space. A lot of them are value add, you know, yeah. meaning you've got experience in that industry and they can really help you grow that business and answer a lot of questions you might have after, you know, post-close. So um, there, I think the fact that it's not that difficult to raise equity for these deals, that's good. Then that means we can still get deals done just maybe with a little more equity. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And so now getting into the deal team, right? So most of these searchers or first-time acquirers understand that, okay, there's the accountants that you end up teaming up with or the quality of earnings, the financial due diligence side that you need to get handled. And those guys kind of represent you, right? So if you're the buyer, they're kind of on your team. Same thing with the lawyers, right? Where does someone... I'll let I'll give you kind of like a two part question. Where does someone like yourself fall versus a traditional kind of going direct? I, I don't know if anyone really goes direct to the SBA. It's usually just through a bank. But you kind of talked a little bit about how that person, the lender, is a salesperson, right? How how do you kind of structure your team, or what what things do you need to get aligned to make sure that you as the buyer have cohesiveness in your kind of structure of your deal team, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it because it's a team. It's not just one individual. So you have to think about the individual team members and their skill set and, you know, how many small deal transactions they've done. Um, You know, that's all super important. I think everyone understands how to size an individual up, but then you've got to think about the team dynamic. How's this team worked together before? Always better if they have, right? If the if the lawyer knows the lender, knows the Q of E provider, knows you know the accountant, it, it, it's much much smoother. Everybody can get on the phone, speak the same language, and they already you know have 
probably addressed a lot of the problems that you're going to come up with together before. So I, I'd say think of them as a team. We do work that way. That is exactly how we work. We get to know each other um, and and form opinions about how how to work together best. And uh, I think it, that's that's really important. Asking, picking maybe one. You could even start that way. If you've decided the lawyer you've picked is is perfect for you and perfect for what you want, then you ask that lawyer who else. Who do you typically work with for? You know, who do your clients use for Q of E that you really like? Who do what lenders do you really like, or or what loan brokers like Bizo <laughs> do they really like? Uh, you know, th- let them kind of tell you, hey, this is the team I, I prefer to work with. Uh, that that can be a shortcut to to figuring out your deal team. Got it. Okay, interesting. And so, just off the bat, I don't know if you have any ones that you've worked with. Um, would you have any recommendations for say? lawyers or QOV providers or so? And do you mentally bucket them in different like EBITDA ranges that they handle? Or is it pretty distinct between like lower mid-market searchers and then real, you know, serial private equity people? Yeah, I like that question. There's a lot of different ways I think about a QOV provider. And I do have, I'll tell you my top three. So Hmm. I'll say this. Uh, I have, I I like Jerry's, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jerry Zoe at Hood and Strong. Mm-hmm. Max, Max Loomis at LCS mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Wersima at Miller Cooper. Um, I think they all do great work and, and I really enjoy working with them. There's other good, great ones too. So those are, you know, I'm not saying any of the other ones are not good. These are just my top three that I, I really like, and I've done a lot of business with. Um, and so, you know, do I, do I bucket them by EBITDA? Not really other than like, yes, you're right. If it's a conventional loan, of a size that so say maybe three and a half million EBITDA and above yeah. those, these guys don't work in that space. They're, they're not set up for that. Um, not, it's not a skill set thing. It's just that the scope of work is usually very different and the price is very different. Um, yeah. The bigger deals are paying a lot more for their QV and they're getting a much bigger wordier report um, that they're, you know, that their investors and their lenders would require, but in smaller companies, you know, it, it's the the cost has got to be reasonable relative to the size of the deal, and so these are providers that that understand that and have set up their services around that space. Um, so when I think of you know within the small deal space, I then think of Q of E providers sometimes based on industry or based on a particular issue. Like if I know a deal's got a really complicated working capital, um, you know, maybe it's got work in process and inventory and um, you know, just you name it and long receivables and all kinds of stuff going on. I I want a certain Q of E provider that I know that I've got experience that have, has done a great job of that because ironing out working capital in these, de- in these small deals is really, really critical. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's complicated. It's not always complicated, but sometimes it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree. Like in software deals with the deferred revenues. And if like a lot of times sellers haven't talked about that, on the working capital side, or that's not captured in the LOI, if that's going to be like a treated as indebtedness or a purchase price adjustment, I've definitely seen those kind of issues come into play later on when working capital isn't kind of hashed out uh, properly, even, even up front, even like maybe in the LOI stage. So um, yeah, you know, it's it working capital. We could do a whole podcast on working capital and small deals Yeah, <laughs> and um, still not cover it all. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. And how about on the, I guess on the law firm side? 
Uh, on the law firm side, again, I, I go with uh, folks that are specializing in small deals and doing a lot of transactions all over the country. I I know some people like the local uh, lawyer. I always get a little nervous because I don't know them. You know, I haven't I haven't yeah. worked with them as much, and so I think for the most part, the SMB space has turned into sort of a national market for the vendors. And, um, I, you know, so, so I, I like the folks that, that kind of work in, in all the different geographies, but do, just do lots of volume because that means we've come across all these, um, kinds of issues and problems before. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, they've got to have good, you know, good friendly pricing for small deals again, just like the Q of E providers. Um, there are great lawyers out there that I, I know and I think are fantastic, but I couldn't recommend them to somebody doing a small deal because they would be too expensive. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then typically for even someone uh, like for even the people that you work with Aviso Capital, where do you feel that like is the minimum threshold for EBITDA or like a loan that really people should don't need to necessarily go through all the headache or so uh, of putting together a deal team to to purchase an acquisition? And I know obviously it depends on the industry, but is there like a, a minimum from like the SBA standpoint uh, or from like a bank loan? You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, the banks don't want to do acquisition loans below $500,000, the loan amount. Uh, yeah. That's just too small. And even between 500 and a million dollar loan amount is kind of a gray area as to whether many banks will want to do those. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so so that gets a little tricky. Do do you need a deal team? Gosh, I feel like you always need a deal team. You know, it's yeah. still real dollars, and it's still a business. And you know, you don't always need a Q of E. Um, I think if it was me, I would always get. I would get one. I mean, I I think I would rather sleep at night, and I'd rather pay the you know the ten or fifteen thousand dollars that it costs. But a really small deal of a, maybe it's a franchisee, and it's got really simple to understand numbers. Maybe you don't. Um, but I, I think th- there's a, a mistake, though, in thinking that small deals are, represent less risk. Mm-hmm. They don't. They actually represent greater risk. And the one proof point of that is if you look at the SBA uh, default rate data, and I actually have a, a blog post on my website uh, with that article and all the all the data. The smaller the loan, the greater the the default rate. What that just tells you right there, it's risk. Um, really small companies are very risky, very risky to put leverage on and just, they're just risky in general to buy. So I, I always think, you know, go for at least one and a half million of enterprise value and above. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's a better company. Usually, usually not always, but usually. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that makes a lot of sense because I mean, it all obviously depends on like what the cash flow is afterwards, but it ends up being a situation at that higher price point where you're not just buying another job you're actually being able to be an owner and hopefully have enough cash flow left over after all, you know, debt payments and everything to be able to like grow a team and have a sustainable business rather than just being another full-time employee essentially. Yeah. And I think buying a job, it's not just that, you know, there's a big leap from, you know, you'd have to build your own staff and teams before you could really work, you know, on the business instead of in the business. But there's also that risk of, what makes you think you can do a better job of being the business than the guy that started it or the lady yeah. that started it? You know, it, it's kind of risky right there is you've got to, you've got to do their job completely uh, and do yeah. it well, or you have no business. Yeah. So it's tough. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. And now I know you had mentioned this a little bit before, but I'd like to definitely get into it now because there's a lot of like 
obviously there's a lot of moving parts whenever you're going to any acquisition, but for the SVA or a debt provider bank specifically, what do they like to see from a team, from a, a searcher or a sponsor when they're getting presented a deal and, you know, get the LOI in place? What, how, how does, what advice do you have there for searchers? Well, that is really, really important. Obviously, when you go to present a deal, um, you know, you want to make a really great impression on the bank. Um, so there, there's a lot of thought and strategy that needs to go into that. And that's part of what Viso helps with. So the first thing that we do is we set up this beautiful data room and we create folders that are super organized around the business financial, the broker SIM. Um, we have some, some materials that we ask our buyers to put together. Having the buyers put together a debt coverage model, a non-financial scorecard, um, some, you know, sometimes some other memos that address certain particular characteristics of the deal. That's really important because that's the lender's first impression of you as a buyer uh, and your understanding of this business. Really important that that be done well. And 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 I've seen, you know, a huge swing between the best at that and, and some that were really not very good at that. So that's something to consider too. You're sort of, you're not just selling the deal, but you're selling yourself as understanding the deal and as understanding the company that you're going to run. The bank's going to put the money in there for you to run it. You've got to demonstrate that. So I use a system, uh, a data room system called Ideals. It's great. And we customize the folders every time. And we think about the psychology of how the lender is going to scroll through those folders and, you know, make some of them stand out. You know, if, if I'm working on a company that's got licensing issues, I have a folder in there that says license plan. It only has one document in it that the buyer prepared about their license plan, but it stands out. It answers a question as the lender sort of thinking, oh, I need to know about that. There it is. It's right there, easy to find. So I think um, that whole presentation of the deal is really important. And sometimes I advise my clients, let's wait before we send this deal to a bank. I'll give you an example. We have one that's going through QV right now. We know that it has some inventory, like the seller has does not have good inventory systems. And therefore, we know the Q of E is going to change the EBITDA. Probably downward, it usually is, but you know, you never know. It's but it's going to change. Yeah. And that means the deal's going to change. We would rather submit that deal to the bank after the Q of E in that case. Most of the time I submit before, but in this case, we're going to wait and we're going to get the deal restructured. And then we're going to submit to the bank so that everything's there. It's clean and easy. The alternative would be to have the bank sort of go to credit for approval of a term sheet that looks one way and then come back and the, and the actual approval of the loan looks completely different. And every time you make big changes, you know, like that for the credit folks in the bank, you run some risks that they may change their mind or they just start to feel a little not comf confident in the deal, whatever. But so... There's a whole strategy about what to present and when to present it to the bank. Got it. Got it. Okay. And after you submit it to the bank, you say you have it packaged up nicely. What's the general timeline that they take before they get back to you um, on a potential like, you know, interest rate or, or how, how does that look? Like what, once you have the package together, what, what does that process actually look like for, for a buyer? Yeah. So the way we do it is when we know we're ready. Um, so that may have taken us a little bit of extra time to get ready, to get everything in there that we needed. Then we open the data room on a read-only basis to the bank. And if we did a, our job right, they will issue a term sheet within three to five days. And okay. they will have had enough time to vet it with credit because everything's there. Their questions are answered. Um, 
my, you know, last week I did that a client, we had the data room ready. Everything was there that was needed on Tuesday. He was signing a term sheet that he was happy with on Thursday. So that's, I I think that's easier for a Viso to pull off though, (laughs) than, than for an individual searcher to do that. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so Viso will take care of the process of, okay, talking to a few different banks, that would be the right ones for this specific deal, this specific Mm -hmm. size you'll negotiate on behalf of the buyer for some of the term sheets and try to kind of figure out the terms and and work through that process. That's right. I I ask my clients, what's most important to you in choosing a bank first? Um, And because it's different for everybody, Uh, there may be a weird thing with this deal. We just got to find a bank that will be comfortable with that, or it could just be certainty of close. It could be, it's usually certainty of close, but um, whatever it is. Um, and then I, then I reach out to the banks that I work with and start getting a feel for which ones will, will be comfortable, the most comfortable with this particular deal. And then we submit, you know, to the one that we think is, is the right one, but if they don't like it, or there is something they don't, the term sheet's not great. Great. We can close off their access to the data room and immediately open it to another bank. Um, the borrower is not sending, you know, everything starting all over with a million emails, uh, to, to a banker. So, um, that's how we do it. Okay. Got it. Got it. And so assuming you have your documents together, a nice data room, decent presentation outside of that, are there any, you know, based on your experience in the past history at maybe live Oak or even prior to that, are there any other kind of major mistakes or red flags that a buyer can make even after they've put together everything financially uh, and documentation wise that might mess up a deal or mess up a chance of getting the financing? You know, once you have a term sheet and a really complete data room, the the odds are getting better and better as the further you know down you get, uh, your odds are getting better towards closing. Um, you know, there's, I don't see buyers make a lot of mistakes at that point. By then they've got a, quite a bit of diligence done. Um, what generally happens after a, a term sheet and a lot is done that, that kills deals is discovering something in diligence that just isn't, is a no-go or you can't get the seller to retrade or renegotiate based on whatever the, the item was, um, or seller cold feet, which does happen, unfortunately, um, you know, more than people might wish it did or more, more than any of us wish it did. Uh, but I don't see, I can't really think of a particular mistake that I've seen searchers make at that point. Um, I, I think, uh, just, you know, the, the, the main thing, the, the real mistake, I guess, is not doing thorough diligence mm-hmm. and there's no perfect way to do that. But I think the key is within your 90 days of exclusivity, have a great diligence list, great diligence providers and um, make sure it's thorough. I have seen folks close a deal, come back later and say, oops, you know, we missed something. It doesn't always end up being fatal flaw, right? But it is like there is a kind of a nervous period where they realize that, you know, that something wasn't addressed during diligence that they're finding out later. There's also some things you just can't find out in diligence. You are you are going to always have some surprises after close. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. And I know you have some awesome, and I was actually on these like the bi-weekly Zoom sessions where you talk about deal financing, structuring questions, um, and you take Q&A at the end and, and it's awesome. And I definitely advocate anybody. I'll put the link in the description to go check those out. But I'm sure you mentioned this in the beginning and I have people that ask me and I'm sure everyone's interested. Is there one or two highlights that you can give without having to go into like a, like a you know, on, on the new SBA rules that are advantageous to buyers? 
um, that they can maybe a, a new approach you're seeing, a new ad, uh, advantage. I, I know there's a lot, but if, if you had two minutes to, to just talk about the highlights. Okay. Yeah, there's three things, really, three categories. One is uh, probably more of your viewers are not as interested, but uh, there used to be a personal liquidity limit. If people were too wealthy, they couldn't use an SBA loan. That's not a problem anymore. So if you had someone that wanted to be a personal guarantor with you in the loan and they had you know quite a bit of cash, maybe they're an investor, that, that's okay now where it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, the next two are... Uh, one of them is that you can have less equity, less cash equity in the deal if you structure a seller note in certain ways. Um, the reality there is most banks aren't going to go for that lower equity, lower than 5% um, for very many situations. It's going to be few and far between. So I wouldn't, as a first time buyer, I wouldn't count on that or really, um, you know, I would, I would assume that your minimum equity is going to be at least 5%. And in many cases, 10%. Um, so that's, even though the rule change may not apply to first-time buyers very much. And the last one is seller rollover equity. Um, it was never allowed before. It is now. It's really most advantageous when there were some minority employee, minority shareholder employees. Um, maybe they were given 5% or something. You used to have to buy them out and make them leave the company. Now they could roll their equity and stay in the company. That's the best use case for that rule. Beyond that, it, it gets a little, um, it, it, it is kind of cumbersome and not that useful other than that situation from what I know so far. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. And no, I appreciate those highlights because yeah, that's definitely something that I know. Are, are the rules all in place already or are they going active in August or? Well, we thought it was going to be August 1st, but everyone uh, seems to agree now that they are in place now. Okay. Okay. So the, those are kind of enacted when you're working with the SBA. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. No, I mean, this was super helpful. I really appreciate you going through all this. Um, for any of our listeners, I'm going to link them to the uh, registration for the Zoom uh, biweekly meetings. because I think those are awesome. But uh, is there anywhere else where you're kind of posting content? Um, I know you're on a bunch of different podcasts and stuff anywhere you can kind of where people can reach you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, follow us on Acquisitions Anonymous. Um, I'm on the podcast now. It's it's a uh, oh wow okay. You're uh, have you been on that for a while or? Uh, that's just started. Uh, oh, I think awesome. I just today recorded two more, and I think that'll be like my fourth and fifth ones. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and I'm trying to keep up with the you know with the guys. They're they're uh, they're awesome at it, and uh, I try to bring the lender perspective. So I'm I'm there. Uh, I'm always posting stuff on Twitter. My website. Uh, I've got one piece of content there, but I'll be adding a new. Uh, piece uh, about women uh, acquisition entrepreneurs and what that's like. Uh, I, I'm working on that now, and that should be out in a couple weeks. And uh, yeah, reach out to me in any of those platforms um, if you're interested in learning more. Got it. Got it. Awesome. And and I, I, last question. I know that I said that was the last one, but I did. You just brought up something interesting. Are there any advantages for minority-owned, women-owned with the SBA from an acquisition standpoint that? might be on the radars of, of, of those individuals? Or that Unfortunately, be- there's not any special rules or okay. extra advantages, no. I mean, the SBA does track women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses, and they have a lot of statistics on what's happening there, which is all in a positive direction, which is great to see. But there are no special rules or fees or anything like that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate the time so much, Heather. Um, I'm definitely going to be in your next one. I think it's on the 13th. So you'll see me there. Your next. Uh, That's visit. great. Uh, 
definitely appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you on in the future too. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.